Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics event, Age of Apocalypse, and nothing but Age of Apocalypse, every week from now till eternity. This week, we're slashing and burning our way to Avalon and being super into our sexy dominatrix mothers as we peel back the gold foil cover to tackle the miniseries Excalibur, starring iconic Excalibur members Kurt Darkholm, Mystique, Switchback, and Damask. Excalibur is a four-issue limited series originally published in 1995, and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Ken Lashley, Roger Cruz, Renato Arlem, Charles Moda, and Eddie Wagner on pencil. Phil Moy, Bud LaRosa, Tom Wegzern, and Harry Candelario on inks, Joe Rosas and Digital Chameleons on colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney on editing. Everything they built will fall, and from the ashes of their world, we'll build a better one. Welcome back to the world where America is dead, and what sits in its place is a gangrenous wound of a nation, the American dream of the creature known as Apocalypse. But why am I telling you things you already know? We've all been here as long as we can remember. But who are we? I am always, am your host, Michael Hancock, reader of comics, player of games, and person who won't shut up about choose-your-own-adventure stuff. I'm joined, as always, by Calervo. Hi, I am, as always, reader of comics, player of games, and person who won't shut up about Batman. And Sam. Hey, I am also your constant comics companion and shipper of Mystique and Destiny. This very special miniseries deserves a very special guest, so we are once again going to try to reach out to the esteemed Dr. Christopher Maverick to join us for this convo. Let's call him now. Who is this? Uh, this is the oh gosh, oh golly, oh... How did you get this number? You were actually in the phone book. Look, I'm about sick of you kids. How many times do I have to tell you? I don't do podcasts. They're not real shows. I only do real media, like the Dick Cavett Show, or McEnroe. Or Sajak, I'm certainly not defiling myself to appear on some two-bit pretend show on the interwebs or the tweeter or wherever the hell it is you kids call it. I don't pod, and I don't cast, 
And I sure as hell don't talk about stupid funny books. They should have banned those infernal things back in 55 when Wortham warned us about them. But no, you bleeding heart hippies had to have your Batmans and your Phantom Ladies turning the whole Cinemaplex into a wasteland of so-called popular entertainment with your crime suspense stories and your timely cinematic universe. Rubbish! All of it. You kids need to get a real job. And you need to, you need to be reading real literature. Try some Faulkner. It builds character. Now leave me alone. If you call me again, you'll be hearing from my lawyers. Podcast indeed. Well, okay. In a perfect world, Dr. Maverick would be on every podcast, but I guess it's just us today. Steering into the decrepit submarine towards Antarctica. But we've got a great discussion in store. Before we get into this week's issues, it's been a while since we've reminisced about what brought us here, so let's take a quick trip down memory lane. Where were we when the Age of Apocalypse happened? Which of us were aware of it at the time? Um, I mean, I'll go first. Uh, or maybe, Michael, why don't you go first as our host? I'm sorry, I should always bow to the precedence of the host. Why, why thank you. <laughs> so in my case, uh, I had a very tangential connection to Age of Apocalypse while it was coming out. My brother had the Age of Apocalypse Nightcrawler action figure, which I desperately wish I had stolen from him for the purpose of this episode. And the only issue of Age of Apocalypse we had when it came out was issue four of Amazing X-Men. And that comic is just ingrained in my soul. I, we had no idea what was going on, no clue who the characters were or what was happening, but it was for sure the coolest thing we'd ever read. That's that's like they go to rescue Jamie Madrox, is that right? Yes, with rescue in uh, scare quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, the fact that I knew off the top of my head what happened in Amazing X-Men number four should be an indicator that I was I was on the ground floor of Age of Apocalypse. I wasn't quite on the ground floor, but I will say that probably the first Marvel comic I ever read was X-Men Chronicles number two. So I have like very clear, vivid memories. Um, Age of Apocalypse not only got me into Marvel comics, but also got me into uh, a very brief period in which I was obsessed with the idea of collecting comics. So uh, for a while there, I was buying not only every issue from the Age of Apocalypse I could get, but I thought I should get double issues of everything so that I could have one for reading and, you know, one for preservation for value. So, uh, you know, over the years, I've gotten rid of most of my floppy comics, but I still have all of my entire run of Age of Apocalypse in a closet somewhere. So I'd say conservatively, I've probably read this series a dozen times in my life. <laughs> um, so I never had any of the toys. I wasn't aware of any of those, I don't think. But I, I just loved it. I loved, I was familiar with the X men from the cartoon and so this is like an alternate universe i i just thought was the coolest thing kind of my introduction to alternate universes too i came to this um in a very similar way to a lot of my marvel comics experiences my brother is 11 years older than i am and so when i was very small like i had his original spider-man comics stuff like that but didn't really get into it for myself until much later which i'm totally not afraid to admit happened because of other media so films like spider-man or the original um, x-men film series got me interested and then i'd go looking for books 
Age of Apocalypse actually came much later. I didn't really know of its existence until Saladin Ahmed's Exiles series came out. So I think that's only been in the last like five years or so. And because of that, I then started looking into what was the basis for all of this and and found Age of Apocalypse. But I can say that I have not actually read this series, um, the Excalibur series, until preparing for our particular recording this week. Oh, wow. Fresh. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I I would love to hear uh Sam your initial impressions of Excalibur, just bounce whatever you've got bouncing around your head just off the top of the dome. You yeah. know that like little emoji that has like the really big wide eyes and like kind of red cheeks. <laughs> that that <laughs> Um, this is, I mean, I have to say, like, I will totally go back and read all four of these, like, several more times because I, it's a little like I just can't pull myself away. I kind of have to look at all the grotesque that I see there. But one of the things that, like, for me, I've I've just found a little jarring is the art. It's Mm. not my preference. So, um, to see how exaggerated so much of this is. Has just been, yeah, rattling. The first page of the first issue has like three skulls with uh, <laughs> like stakes sticking through them. <laughs> like that's like the first image you see when you open the page. So yeah, like right off the bat, this is a very grimacing kind of comic for mm-hmm. sure. I don't think it's like poorly done art, but I totally get the idea that it is it, it is not like pleasant to look at from a like, especially if you're not super just programmed to love the age of apocalypse from childhood (laughs) yeah i mean i I would say like it must be the third page right where you get a shot um of kane kind of from above right you have a bird's eye view and the proportion of his head compared to the (laughs) rest of his body i mean that almost had me shut the book right there i was just like no this is too ridiculous i i'm not doing this but i mean obviously as a as a fan of superhero comics, I have to deal with that kind of um, you know difference in in terms of how bodies are portrayed. But in the yeah. home reality, Kane Marco knows to wear the helmet so people don't make fun <laughs> of his tiny tiny head. <laughs> I mean. I think that, like, I would love to, like, I feel like we could go page by page and just pour over some of the, I think, grotesquery is, like, a really interesting way to put mm-hmm. it. Because at yeah. other times, I think this book really, like, skirts beauty in some ways. Mm-hmm. And, like, you were just talking about, like, page three, where you see Kane Marco in these super weird proportions. And then you jump ahead, like, another three pages to page six or something. And it's this just verdant, beautiful landscape of Avalon and so there's like there's some sort of grace that runs through it Mm -hmm. and I I would often think of this series in relationship to like all of the other Age of Apocalypse miniseries most of which take place you know how we see three skulls on the first page (laughs) most of those take place on top of mountains of skulls like literal mountains (laughs) 
yeah, so it's, like, a nice, it's a nice visual transition that you're kind of traveling yeah. with outside of, yeah. Excalibur is a breather. <laughs> There's like a couple of minor bad guys chasing them rather than an army that's literally called the Infinites and, and a bad guy that's literally called Holocaust. They lean yeah. hard into, this is like, uh, Age of Apocalypse is like the epitome of 90s grimdark, right? So mm-hmm. like, I mean, like, and for sure, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but it, you know, it totally lives up to its grimdark because it takes that beautiful verdant landscape and sets it on fire. But uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. All right. I think we might have some new listeners with us today. So Calervo, would you like to give a quick rundown of just what the heck Age of Apocalypse is all about? You know, Michael, I am so glad you asked. Age of Apocalypse is, it's going to sound like I'm reading off of a page, but this is all straight off the dome because I've read it so many times. Um, Age of Apocalypse is an alternate timeline X event that took place in the mid 90s in which the the catalyzing action is Professor X's long lost, I want to say his long lost son who has multiple mental health challenges that are not handled in a great way in a very like 90s kind of way. I think he's supposed to have quote unquote multiple personality disorder. Anyways, he decides that the way to prove his love to his father is to go back in time and kill Magneto. And so he does that, but at the last second, a young Charles Xavier jumps in front of a young Magneto, and therefore there are no X-Men led by Charles Xavier. So instead, Magneto ends up founding the X-Men. What does this have to do with Apocalypse, a villain who I did not just mention, you might ask? Well, Apocalypse comes along and takes over the all of North America. Somehow Magneto couldn't get that done. Only Charles Xavier could have gotten that done. And in so doing, uh, Culls most of the humans in North America sets up a very much survival of the fittest kind of regime and all of the X-Books for four months in like 94, 95, something like that, shifted titles and uh, in some cases creative teams and gave us like one cohesive story in which all of the different factions were running around trying to like go towards the same goal, which is repair the time stream. So that's sort of a boy, I guess not a Cliff's Notes, I I was very verbose there and I apologize. <laughs> Not at all. Great account. I, I know I've said it many times before in previous episodes, but I do love the way this event is. It feels so much more organized than a lot of crossovers because every series has its own little, and here's where this set of characters went during the time between the first and last. And this is following yet another one of those strands. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think about crossover events quite a bit. And I think that like this event is like a rare breed in which none of the four issue long miniseries are the main vein of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. You have to go and read like all of them to figure out what's going on. If you compare that to an event that happens, like I would say Age of Apocalypse is probably one of the biggest events of the 90s that oh, happened sure. in X-Men com or in Marvel Comics. And one of the biggest events of the 2000s was obviously Civil War. And most of the crossover books in Civil War, most of the Civil War branded comics don't really have, like they don't really contribute anything. You can kind of get away with just reading the seven issues 
issue Mark Miller, is it Mark Miller and Steve McNiven mm-hmm. uh, series? And then you'll get most of the story. Whereas this is like, it's truly like dispersed, disturb, dispersed storytelling across all of these different miniseries. And everybody is going and picking up their own little piece of the puzzle. And it comes together in a book aptly titled X-Men Omega. All right. Uh, we've established, I think, the overall tableau we're talking about here. Let's dive in with an issue summary. In Excalibur 1, Magneto orders Nightcrawler, aka Kurt Darkholm, to find his way to Avalon to find a precog named Destiny. But only one person knows Destiny, and that person happens to be Kurt D's mother, Mystique, who ferries refugees to Avalon. Kurt meets with Warren Worthington, who runs a nightclub called Heaven, and John Proudstar, who runs a church called Ghost Dance, to get a fare to Avalon. Kurt finds what he needs and a little more besides. Both Worthington and Proudstar claim Mystique takes the refugees' money and dumps them in the ocean. Meanwhile, Apocalypse's Pale Riders, featuring Damask, Daniel Moonstar, and Dead Man Wade, are dispatched to follow Kurt to to learn the secret location of Avalon. Elsewhere, none other than Avalon, at the heart of the Savage Land, a mutant called Switchback arrives. She's created by Kane, Marco, and Destiny, who has a vision of destruction upon touching Switchback's hand. Onward to Excalibur 2, in which Kurt Darkholm survives a busted submarine and the machinations of Callisto, who's the real evil mutant, drowning refugees in the ocean. Kurt kills the crew in revenge, but ultimately needs rescuing by Mommy Mystique, who denies being evil. Meanwhile, Damask kills Danny Moonstar for torturing a dead man Wade, but also because she just likes killing things. In Excalibur 3, Kurt talks Mystique into accompanying him to Avalon. When they eventually arrive at the main village, Mystique runs into her old friend, Destiny, and Destiny's adopted son, Douglas. Mystique explains that Magneto sent her to take Destiny to the X-Men. They need her to confirm Bishop's story about the future and restore the timeline to what it should be. Meanwhile, the Pale Riders arrive on Avalon. Wade tries to kill everyone. Kane's commitment to pacifism causes him to die pretty instantly of an aneurysm. Damask switches sides, and Kurt kills Wade by teleporting his head off. Finally, in Excalibur 4, Kurt, Mystique, Switchback, and Damask find themselves fighting Apocalypse's secret weapon, the Shadow King. When Shadow King takes over Mystique, Kurt comes up with a plan to take him down. Combining Kurt's teleportation, Switchback's time-shifting, and Damask's psionic powers, they cripple Shadow King. Before he dies, Shadow King fires one last energy blast at Destiny, but Doug takes the blast in her place. With Avalon in flames and her adopted son dead, Destiny finally decides to go with Excalibur to see Magneto, vowing to end the reign of Apocalypse. All right, uh, I guess we can start here with some first impressions. Sam, would you like to start us off? What were your first impressions here? Sure. You know, like I said, visually, this is maybe not my my preference, but having said that, I love everybody's hair. I think it all looks great and luscious. Oh, One of the got that volume, baby. Oh, Mystique's oh, yeah. hair is amazing. She should be like this Man, all the even time. Man, uh, even Magneto's pigtails are like lush, you know? I'm, <laughs> I'm for this. One of the other things that really struck me is how much like Sarah Connor, Mystique, appears to be I mean she's very much that character and so I I I don't know about Ellis's um kind of exposure to the Terminator but this all has a very Terminator feel which again because I I've only recently come to the series I can't tell if that annoys me or (laughs) if it's helpful context I think it's more the former at this point but I have to come back to you when we you know come back to our next episode um on our podcast next week but yeah I, I think that that was a really fascinating 
fascinating kind of way to see Mystique. Of course, you know, she's always been cunning and deadly, but to also kind of have this really kind of tough mommy will take care of it thing (laughs) in a post-apocalyptic world was a change. My other first impression is that there are several sequences in the various issues where there's some pretty like racist nonsense and that was like I don't know I don't see the point like what why would you even go there Um, particularly the way that I think you know the the ghost dance church is portrayed and John oh, Crown yeah. Star. Um, yeah. All of that is is actually pretty offensive. Yeah. Deep cultural appropriation. Oh yeah, I mean, and just yeah. like a, there's just really not even a lot of effort, right? Like, so when Kurt Darkholm kind of stumbles onto Proud Star's church, like in the panels where you get glimpses of it, and I think this is part of the problem. People are sort of in the background, and they're just. They're drawn in this very sort of kind of gestural way, but all you can see is them kind of, they almost look like they're flailing, you know, their limbs kind of spread out, most of their mouths are open, they are dancing around a fire that's mentioned that there's incense um but there's just like no anything that like resembles a a specific group of people or tribal tradition um so i think that's kind of icky right because it kind of collapses all of this into well obviously um sort of white colonial imagination of of what indigenous uh, traditions would look like and And it really does, like, look like this sort of, you know, like, unsophisticated, sort of, like, savage tradition. And I just kind of wondering, like, why are we still at that point? I mean, you know, like, we're mid-90s. There's not really an excuse for this. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that was one of the things where I just kind of kept asking myself, like, what the hell is going on here? Like, I don't know why this doesn't add anything. I'm not really sure what what we need with this. I mean, similarly, you know, a couple issues later, the various snide comments about the Shadow King and and. Arab accents and the sort of choice for how the Shadow King appears. Again, he's like, he's sort of big and fat and has a fez on his head. And it's just like, eee, okay. Like, I don't. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, I those mean, are sort of my first impressions. Like, visually, it's like, like I said before, I kind of can't turn away from it. And I, I, I want everyone's hair. But, but other than that, there's these things where I'm just like, wow, this is really melting my mind. And I don't think in good ways. <laughs> Yeah, taking the two arguably most prominent X-Men related First Nations characters and killing one off very quickly and turning the other into a murder happy weirdo for no particular reason, uh, both yeah strange choices and then also killing yes. them off really quickly like yeah. both those first mm-hmm. nations yeah. characters die super fast so like two scenes each for them you know yeah well and that okay that's another thing like i know we're gonna get into this kurt's sort of proclivity to teleport body parts I thought that was completely gratuitous. Like, I'm just, I don't really know, especially since Kurt's, like, here trying to get these people to ferry him to where he needs to be. The fact that he teleports off John Proudstar's finger is just like, holy cow. That was, what What does this add? You know, I'm not really 1994, sure. 1994, baby. It's 1994. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, okay, grim. You're right. It's grim. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. I can't tell, like, if this was later in Ellis's writing career, I would chalk it up to, like, almost satire of grimness. But at this point, it does kind of fit the tone of the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That actually goes to, like, what my first impressions of this miniseries were which is that I really tried to approach it um this is probably the first time I've read it in a good 15 years something like that and I think probably the last time I'd read it uh I wasn't really that familiar with Ellis you know some somewhere in the intervening 15 years I went like deep in into that bench so I tried to approach it looking looking at it that way and, and I want to like bring together the two things that, that both of you just said, which is that it feels very, very Ellis. And it also feels very, very 90s Ellis. So like oh. Sam, all the stuff you were saying about like how shallow this interpretation of yeah. indigeneity is, this would have been considered like deep for 1994 right Mm -hmm. like because it's not out and out like racist stereotypes instead it's more subtle racist stereotypes (laughs) so the fact that it adds any kind of like depth or conversation to what it is that they're doing still exoticizing but not completely othering is supposed to be like that that sort of if i think if you look at any of the sort of deep thinker writers of the 90s who carried on and sort of became like superstars of the 2000s. You would see sort of Grant Morrison approaching indigeneity the same way. You would see uh, just a lot of other writers sort of coming at this in terms of like cultural exploration, but not quite like adding anything beyond just saying like, well, let's talk and unpack it from a philosophical perspective, not actually like doing the research as much. And then the part of it that feels like Ellis throughout is the part where it comes down to ideas and mechanics and that like like innovating a solution is one of the most important things for him so you know michael when you were giving your rundown of like how they combine kurt's teleportation and switchbacks time shifting and damask psionic powers i'm like yeah yeah ellis had to invent two characters in an alternate universe (laughs) comic to do that switchback and damask did not exist before the age of apocalypse ellis spun them out of thin air for this run which kind of makes me think like ellis was like fed up with the assignment because he was (laughs) he had just created like pete wisdom in the regular run of excalibur and was like you know absolutely i think right after the age of apocalypse ends it becomes like the pete wisdom show in the pages Mm -hmm. of excalibur and so i think ellis just wanted to like play with new characters and so he invents two new mutants with two new powers only one of whom has ever even been introduced into regular continuity. I don't think Switchback has ever made it over into, I guess, Earth. Is it Earth 616? I don't, I don't yeah. know from Marvel. Well, or is it the MCU now Earth 616 since the movies are not subordinate to the comics <laughs> in any way, shape, or form? Well, that does explain how or why maybe Switchback and Damask kind of disappear at some point on the way back to North America as they, yeah. they, they are not, not appearing. X-Men Omega, yeah. 
Mystique, also not an X-Men Omega at all. I think she's no up there for like two panels and disappears. Is she? All right. I'm going to pull out my X-Men Omega and I'm going to start flipping through it. Fact <laughs> check you. <laughs> Fair enough. I should be checked. Here, listen to the sound of 30-year-old tape getting pulled off of plastic. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, our research expert is searching. Let's let's move on to our, well, one mainstay character, the character who is most related to the 616 Excalibur. We talk a lot about Kirk Darkholm, of course, on this podcast, as a character who's been around since the beginning, as a character who later crosses out into the 616. He is one of the, of course, big pillars of the Age of Apocalypse universe. But for this miniseries, for the first time, he gets a little time to shine. So let's talk about him a little bit. Uh, Kurt Darkholm is based on the other different version of Nightcrawler, who goes by the name Kurt Wagner. What makes Kurt Darkholm then clearly different and better than Kurt Wagner? Uh, I think we have a caller, which is strange because this isn't a call-in show. Hello? Who is this? Uh, you called us. Is this the Ogasho Galio Wow podcast? Yes. But it's the Age of Apocalypse one, right? For sure. Oh, thank Apocalypse. Because I hear there's another GGW pod covering the 616 version of Excalibur, and those guys suck. So boring and unattractive and not smart or funny at all. Well, we're definitely talking about Age of Apocalypse, and specifically Excalibur this week. That's why I'm here. My name's not important, but my mission is. I am here to graciously offer you my expertise as Kurt Darkholm's very official PR manager. My very official client wants to make sure that this podcast represents him exactly as magnificently as he deserves. Sure. We are all big fans of the character here. So give us your rundown. What makes Kurt Darkholm the best Nightcrawler called Kurt? As far as I'm concerned, Kurt Darkholm is the only Nightcrawler. That other guy, Kurt Wagner, that was the prototype, the failed prototype. A sketch that second-rate scribbler Dave Cochran dreamed up over a few beers and a thunderstorm, never got around to finishing and hoped no one would notice. Kurt Darkholm is the present best and future Nightcrawler. Kurt Wagner was so useless they had to make him a medic and a pilot and a mechanic and draw him naked half the time just so there was some excuse to keep him in the book and keep readers from being bored to desperate tears. Kurt Wagner sucked so bad he forgot how to teleport and landed in a coma for two years because even the guy who wrote most of his best stories was sick of writing him. Then he tried to resurrect his superhero career in a country where the next best superhero was Captain Britain. Talk about a low bar to pass. Kurt Wagner's mommy tossed him over a waterfall as a baby, not just because he was ugly, but because she knew he'd grow up to suck. Note that Kurt Darkholm's mommy kept him close and nurtured his badassery. And let's talk about that badassery. Kurt Darkholm has swords, plural. He's got body armor. He's got a quaff that a hair metal frontman would kill for. And sure, he might share his seductive velvet fur with Kurt Wagner, but he wears it way better because he accessorizes it with a fucking face tattoo. Kurt Wagner gets the gift of teleportation and uses it to die for his friends, like a million times. But Kurt Darkholm's out here porting out fingers and heads and calling it Tuesday. Kurt Darkholm also offers an interesting commentary on Kurt Wagner's choice to use his powers passively and what that choice might cost him in terms of his autonomy and self-preservation. But this is the age of apocalypse. All that touchy-feely crap, way more of a 616 thing. I have to go. It looks like the Pale Riders have found this base. It was only a matter of time. If I'm still alive when this podcast comes out, send me a link, yeah? Of course. And uh, good luck. 
Lux got nothing to do with it. Well, that was something. Thoughts on what our mysterious stranger had to say? Why do we like Kurt Darkholm? I mean, I like Kurt Darkholm for some of the same reasons that uh, our mysterious caller discussed. But I would also say that our mysterious caller, like, missed an element, which is the the part where Kurt Darkholm has this relationship with his mother that is, like, kind of more established. And it's it's not, like, the deep substance of the miniseries. But knowing the characters from another space and another time, I really like about their relationship that they have this chance to, like, talk and, like, share this sort of familial tenderness for a few scenes. And, and to see Mystique exert this sort of protectiveness over Kurt. Things that, in all my years of reading, like, X-comics outside of the Age of Apocalypse, I just didn't see anywhere. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, this is absolutely my favorite part. Um, because the, you know, poorer, lesser 616 versions of the story basically forced Mystique into being a bad mother, right? Like there's so many conventions that box her in and deprive her of an ability to be a fully developed female character, a fully developed partner, and certainly a mother. I mean, yeah, she throws a baby over a waterfall. There's nothing complex about right. her maternity. She'll there. always have this. <laughs> she'll always have this stain on her i remember yeah. having like one of those one shots that's like x-men origins and it was the one about nightcrawler and it's just the opening scene it's just mystique throwing a baby over a waterfall <laughs> no big deal like we just sort of throw this character to the wolves in order to uh make someone's backstory a little more interesting yeah, I, and I just, that infuriates me on a number of levels. So I also just absolutely love that they have some kind of rapport here. Um, The fact that she's like saying something so normal and mom-ish, like, have you eaten? How come you haven't combed your hair? Like, do you take your vitamins? <laughs> you know, I just really found that endearing, even though, as you say, it's it's not necessarily well-developed. Um, But I think that it but it's makes some of it this stands a little, out. It's, yeah, mm -hmm. and it makes some of it a little yeah, more compelling, right? Like I understand that totally. in this sort of grim dark world, everybody's just got to survive. So you don't, you know, in terms of suspending reader belief, we don't we don't need a lot of motivation. Like literally, it's just live, right? But I think that having oh, yeah. their relationship being a kind of motivating factor for action helps this be more engaging on a kind of I, I mean, funny thing to say dealing with this cast of characters, but on a human level. 100%. I, I was curious what people's read were on this because it, it seemed to me there was like, they were certainly like a much more familiar fam familial terms, but there might've been a bit of estrangement at some point. Like Kurt did not know how to contact Mystique. He has to go on this weird quest galloping inferno thing to get there but th but this is why very that that's what gives it some of the depth right is the distance and yet the tenderness mm -hmm. there's another yeah. mother-son relationship in the age of apocalypse because as we know that is the subject of this podcast the age of apocalypse and it's uh rogue and charles lencher mm -hmm. rogue and magneto's son and it is a hundred percent just like characterized as like mama bear baby cub and like that's what they have to like connect to if you add Magneto into the mix too the guy is too mm. busy speaking in fucking sonnets <laughs> to to like he's like 
he picks up his child at one point and he's just like, ah, my son, a ah, la la la. Um, <laughs> uh, one day I will make a better world for you. He's so fucking up his own ass. And the beautiful thing about this little tiny snippet of a relationship that we get to see is it offers more depth to a parent-child relationship than we're used to seeing. It offers a lot more depth. In just a few scenes, Mm -hmm. it offers like a lot more complexity and depth to parents and their children than we almost ever get to see in the the comics of the in the superhero comics of this era certainly and maybe i'm like waxing poetic as like a, you know as i was reading to i i read this while like holding my tiny baby child in my arms so i like appreciated the depth and complexity of the relationship the fact that there was like some distance there some trauma there but that's Mm -hmm. not that didn't become the immediate topic of discussion right like instead they talked about his his fur you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah i agree i think there's definitely this feeling that there's like a lot of water under the bridge. It's just, thank goodness this time it's not also Kurt's little baby body, you know? Um, (laughs) The one thing that really bothers me, though, in issue three, where they're starting to get a little frustrated with each other, Mystique has just sort of rescued Kurt from the pirates, and he's now trying to press her on, like, what's the nature of your ferrying business? And he smacks her. And I... This is another one of those things where I was just completely taken out of the story. Where you might world. have said, "What does this add?" Yes, <laughs> yes. Like, just seriously, seriously. That, uh, it was another one of these "what the fuck" moments because I'm sorry, maybe it works different in in blue families, but like we have this portrayal of a mother and child, and so the fact that a child is physically abusing a parent is already just like, I don't know, man, I don't know how that works. But I also personally am really put off by depictions of violence against women where it's not that they're in a fight, right? This is not a, this is not them dueling. This is not a, a matching of of abilities like he just strikes her and and i don't see that there's any excuse for that at all and i really can't understand why it's here and it totally subverts like we were introduced to this character at the end of issue two by her like like hanging out of a helicopter holding a giant fucking gun about to kill callisto and so like the fact that then she's just getting slapped in the next time we see her it's not i mean like you talked about this type of violence it's I mean, the reason that it's so disturbed, it's domestic violence, right? Like domestic yeah, violence right. isn't just parents against children. It can also be children against parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, I was very upset reading that, uh, you know, something that didn't bother me at all when I was 10 years old, but uh, bothered me a lot. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, unwarranted, fully. Un, I mean, it, it, I guess, fits a guy who would teleport off the fingers of another guy for no particular reason, but it's still yeah, not, it's super, not a hero move, which I guess is I part mean, of the story, but... Ugh. 
Yeah, it's it's super of its time. Mm-hmm. Earlier, Sam was talking about like the Terminator vibes, and like absolutely, like I mean specifically like Terminator T two Judgment Day vibes. Um, mm-hmm. There is literally a scene in this miniseries where Destiny has a vision of their world on fire, and I'm like, I think that's just the vision from Terminator Two Judgment Day, right? <laughs> like with the chain link fence. So it feels like of its time, and it's a real reminder that all all three of us grew like in our lifetime grew up during a time where this was just like natural part of doing business. It's, 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 it, you know, we tend to think of that as something that like Sean Connery did in Marnie or Jack Nicholson did in Chinatown, but nope, we were, we were just smacking women in the mouth all the way up until very, very recently and just having it be a whatever moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just so frustrating because it to me, it's like, how could this function as anything other than like, we have to take Mystique down a peg at this point in the story, right? We have to maintain in some way that Kurt is really like the most badassest, you know? And so I, I just think like, what, what process I would sort of love and hate to know what is the process when you're scripting this out and you're you know trucking along and at some point you think well I've really got to like I've got to put this this female character you know what we need is is just this son smacking his mother in the mouth it's really gonna make it have an impact when she steps off the beach for the first time you know, it's too bad we don't have a callback number for the mysterious <laughs> caller who claims that Darkholm is better than Kurt Wagner, because I'm pretty sure Kurt Wagner would never slap his mother. Yeah, um, Kurt Wagner but, respects well, his mother and various mother figures. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the conversation's taken a bit of an awkward turn for this. Uh, the, <laughs> no, no, there there are lots of great <laughs> things about Kurt Darkholm that we can talk talk about. <laughs> For another perspective on the Kurt and Raven relationship, Dr. J. Andrew DeMann of the Ellis Run Twitter account argues, quote, Kurt and Raven Darkholm have a much deeper, more profound bond in consequence of John Bowlby's famous maternal deprivation hypothesis, which suggests that the continual disruption of the attachment between infant and primary caregiver could result in long-term cognitive, social, and emotional difficulties for that infant. Does that explain our Kurt Darkholm? Um. Yeah, you know, I'll just I'll just clarify and say I've, I've made my funny little joke about Kurt Wagner. I don't think any of these relationships are like to well, be modeled. Let's yeah. just put it that way. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Calervo brought up the other uh, parental relationship that the series focuses, but we've got another one right here in this set of four issues. We also have uh, Destiny and Douglas as kind of a foil parent-child couple. Is this oh, you're right. a comparison we're meant to... Yeah, you know, I think you're you're exactly right in calling them the sort of the foil and in, in specifically because, of course, Destiny is the founder of this like paradise where she's trying to seed harmony and peace. Douglas 
is clearly meant to be very pacifist and demure. I mean, the first time you see him, he's on his knees, like cuddling a butterfly. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like there's really no comparison to be made here. And he is, he's very, he's um, pretty much a non-issue until the very end, right? Um, And there's a kind of confrontation between him and Kurt that I think, again, is supposed to tease out uh, the differences where Kurt sort of I, I don't want to say demeans I'm not necessarily that's that's the case I think he just kind of like reads him the riot act and is like you're you're living in a fantasy what are you actually doing to help people in the real quote-unquote real world you're just here hiding your your head in the sand you know and again I think for me this is like a sort of uneasy juxtaposition I'm not sure that it actually holds up in the way that Ellis intends it to but but it inspires Doug to make a sacrifice um, in order to save his his mother, right? So someone, as Calero, I think, mentioned this earlier, um, the Shadow King tries to blast Destiny and Doug throws his body in front of her because he suddenly has an awakening that he has to do more, that he can't just cuddle butterflies. Um, so I think in a way, you know... Like, it's not a bad life cuddling butterflies, though, if you really yeah, think about yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, he's the way he's colored, for instance, he's all in these like beautiful blonde and gold tones. And obviously, Kurt is his beautiful furry blues velvet self but he's also much darker with his face tattoo so on and so forth and so I think we are meant to see this as like a here you have this peaceful butterfly loving mother-son relationship and then on the other hand um you've got weapon wielding you know mama slapping whatever but I I don't actually know if I buy the idea that well one that having a kind of safe haven where a different world could be imagined is inherently inferior or wrong. I'm, I'm not sure that I'm really following the creative team on that trail. And then in, you know, the second is, I don't know if, if Doug's awakening actually shows us anything about the character or about his relationship. I, I don't know that there's one. No, it's like, it, it feels like cheap pathos. Mm-hmm. I don't think that yeah. the character has that much depth in this either. Right. He's yeah. really like a mouthpiece for pacifism that the mm-hmm. comic roundly rejects, which is yeah. uh, an issue in and of itself that we could discuss. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's a bit hard to side with Kurt's argument, well, the real world's going to intrude when Kurt was largely responsible for the real world intruding. Yeah, yeah 100%. I mean, we haven't even talked about like the-, the Tail Riders. Like, yeah, we haven't. I mean, it's it's amazing to me. We're getting, we're getting to the end of our time we have yet to discuss the utter destruction of Avalon and what caused that. Mm. We haven't, I'm disappointed in us. Usually in these episodes, we get really deep into like fetishism and relationships and stuff. We haven't even talked about how many people fetishize Kurt's fur in this, but like, <laughs> you know, returning, returning to the point, I think that like Doug is there to serve a plot function. Some of these characters are there to serve. Like, I, I feel like this is Ellis. So almost every Everyone is there to serve a plot function. And then some of them also get to serve emotional functions. And Ellis has this way of writing in such a way that you think there is gravitas to all of those uh, interrelationships. They both are integral to the plot and have like an emotional moment. I think that like Sam's observations point to how thin the the Doug Ramsey aspect of it is which is like a problem but also I think that like in a genre piece I don't 
I don't hate it. Would I have preferred to have more pages to to figure out who this person mm-hmm. is, whose sacrifice is so important that ultimately in X-Men Omega, it plays an integral role in saving the known universe? Yes, I would have liked that. But I guess superhero comics are 22 pages long. I don't, I mean, like, uh, that feels like a cop out, but that's all I've got. Yeah, and I think that's fair. I mean, I I am going to be like reasonable enough to realize like this is just four issues. You're only going to accomplish so much, especially when you are bringing oh the whole Age of Apocalypse into this as much as you can. And and I get it. I think exactly like what you said. The fact that his sacrifice ends up being so pivotal is what sort of annoys me about the you know the one dimensionality of him all the way up to that point um but that's me you know I also am a little like distraught that we don't talk a lot in this episode about dead man wade because this is another point of like can I we don't know. can we talk about dead man wade <laughs> Let's talk about Dead Man Wade. Let's talk about like one of the most popular characters in 2023 Marvel Mm -hmm. and how he was treated in this 1995 comic. Well, it's it's it is so uncomfortable. It reminds me a lot of the is it the Wolverine movie where Deadpool is dispatched very similar, like (laughs) where Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds' first turn as Deadpool, where he has his mouth glued shut, or, right, or right. like he so just doesn't have a mouth. I hate to think of what what body horror shit that entails, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I just this was another source of like uncertainty for me because I couldn't tell how I was feeling. Like in one sense, it really does a nice job of underlining how sort of brutalist this whole thing is, right? It, it is absolutely like do or die but he's so pathetic in this version because they essentially that's exactly the word i was gonna use yeah yeah they essentially tell us that he keeps reverting back right like he can't actually consciously control his mental state all the time and he seems to be very childlike in a lot of ways we should we should give we should give context right which is that for for the listener who hasn't read this which is Deadpool is in this miniseries and his character is Dead Man Wade. And so it's just Deadpool without a mask visually, but he is really, really messed up. And he says things like, oh, we have to kill people because, wait, I'll find like a quote because it's really, really interesting. He he basically gets very, very upset that beautiful things exist and yeah. feels that, that we need to destroy it. Let me see if I can find. All right, here's Dead Man Wade seeing Avalon for the first time. I'm going to read the narration too. The entrance to Avalon, Damask and Dead Man Wade, the Pale Riders, cast by their ruler, Apocalypse, in the role of hunters and killers. Damask, I I didn't know there were places like this, could be places like this. And then Dead Man Wade says, it's alive. And Damask says, what? And Dead Man Wade said, it's alive. Birds singing, fresh grass, real green, not like at home. Insects and worms busy in the earth. It's all alive. And being alive stinks Let's go kill it, Damask. So, like, 
He's just, he thinks he's doing everyone a favor by killing all of them. And then I'll like skip over the scene where Kane Mirko literally dies of an aneurysm from his pacifism mixing with his uh, super aggression. And Dead Man Wade says, life stinks. I'm doing them all a favor. Why aren't you using your powers to mask? They all need to be killed. Apocalypse says, and uh, (laughs) and the mask turns on him. And and stabs him in the neck, and then he goes to mask. <laughs> I'm I'm like it says da da mask sob. Look at me, I am the world. I don't die. I just regenerate and rot. I I I'm a nice man. I am. I just don't want people to be alive. That's all. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna have to kill you now, Damask, because Apocalypse will be angry. Don't use your powers on me. My healing factor will save me. It'll just hurt me some more. <laughs> and the Nightcrawler shows up and says, Guten Tag, and then teleports his head <laughs> off of his body. Um, so, yes, that's the context of well, Dead Man Wade. <laughs> it's like I, most I of his say... dialogue in the whole series. Well, my favorite scene with him actually comes earlier when uh, Damask tells him that he she's murdered Danny Moonstar. And he goes, oh. what? She never really liked you anyway. <laughs> what? It's, wait, wait, wait. I'll find the quote there, too. <laughs> Danny? Danny? Why? Why is all the blood, Damask? Why is she oh. all not? Mo- Why is she all not moving? He does not understand. And Danny has just spent the last, like, presumably several hours just slicing him with a scalpel to to watch his healing factor function. It's a mess, man. Like, I think it's kind of what I It feels so with... natural to me because I've read it so many times, but yeah. I love hearing Sam's take on it. <laughs> it feels, again, this is such a silly thing for me to say. I'm about to say it out loud and I'm like already, my brain is like, what are you saying? Given that this is part of the Age of Apocalypse, our favorite comic that we talk about all the time, but you know. We always talk about feels... this every week. Yep. Yes, we do. It's, it's right as rain, but it just, it feels... <laughs> Totally uneven to me. I It just goes from these, that is just horrifying that this woman would be torturing him just to watch him, you know, bleed and heal to him like sobbing and, you know, being so incoherent. And then we have these sort of happy butterfly cuddling moments. And we have these cute <laughs> little like, have you taken your vitamins moments? So this is where I'm just like, man, my emotions are all over the charts. Well, you're responding just like old Kane. Uh, the the discordance yeah. <laughs> between the two is just striking. Don't have yeah. an aneurysm, Sam. Yeah, I'm going to take have... a couple deep breaths. Ooh. We need to record an episode next week. You cannot die of an aneurysm. Okay, I'm breathing. Good. Is there anything else we want to talk about before we wrap up? So many things, but unfortunately, you know, we've only got an hour per uh, miniseries. So, what do you? Well, luckily, we've got each and every week to get back into it. So, you know, we'll, we'll just save them for next time. For sure. Sounds great. Take Excalibur. Find a pool of calm water 
throw the sword into it. All right, I guess we will wrap up things here for today, other than to remind our lovely listeners of some other ways and places they can find us. Of course, in addition to listening us to us here on this podcast each and every week. You can find me, Michael Hancock, at the Twitter handle Person of Con. How about you, Calervo? You can find me, Calervo Cenervo, on the Twitter handle at Calervideo. That's like K-A-L-E-R video. And you can also find some of the stuff I'm up to at badpanels.com. And Sam, where else can people find you and check out your stuff? Yeah, I'm also on Twitter until Apocalypse wipes that out, which seems to be sooner rather than later. My handle is at S underscore Langsdale. And then you can read more about my work, hopefully in a more sustainable way, on samlangsdale.com. Next, we will definitely still be talking about the Age of Apocalypse, as we've committed to doing each and every week in perpetuity. We hope you continue to join us on our never-ending exploration of the exquisite rotting corpse of America, where we have so much more body armor and face tattoos and extravagant hairdos to talk about. In the meantime, if you like what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out to us via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Clairvo and Sam, for another truly apocalyptic convo, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out.